Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today we're going to begin a two-part discussion about biblical eldership. I know some of you might be tempted to tune out right now thinking, well, I'm not an elder or I'm not planning to be an elder, but this is an important conversation that you need to listen to, we believe, because church leadership is so important. It's a topic that really should interest all Christians because it's going to help us to understand what the values are of the men who lead us, how they affect our spiritual lives, our doctrine, and the health of our churches. So I hope you'll stay tuned as we discuss this critical nature of biblical eldership uh, and dive into it. So Aaron, let's talk a little bit about the history of eldership uh, because the concept isn't actually unique to the New Testament era. Correct. So in the opening pages of the Bible, it's clear that God believes in authority. So broadly speaking, we want to have a conversation about good authority in the local church, but it wasn't just from the book of Matthew onward that God suddenly concerned himself with eldership or authority over his people. We know that God has ordained that a man in a marital context should be the head of his wife. We know that a mother and father are to be respected and honored by their children. It's one of God's great commandments. And we know that God put patriarchs and later judges and later kings in charge of his old covenant people. And we know that in the New Testament, God has placed under shepherds over local congregations. So the Bible is pro-authority. The concept of eldership is this notion that the more seasoned, the more experienced, the more mature should lead the less experienced, the less mature or potentially the younger. However, in biblical eldership, there's also this other dynamic. So eldership doesn't suggest that while the qualifications for eldership are weighty, what we don't want to be thinking about is that if you're an elder, that means you're a better Christian than someone who's not an elder. Nor do we want to assume that if you're an elder, that means that you are somehow more gifted in a comprehensive sense for ministry than, than another person in the congregation. But at the same time, the role of eldership does have certain standards and qualifications attached to it. What I want to do in this episode is help people to understand what an elder actually is. And then Lord willing, in our next episode, our part two episode, I want to help churches and church leaders to think through how to vet, how to develop how to appoint, and how to utilize elders in the life of the local church. In fact, full disclosure, I'm thinking about doing an extended series talking about various leadership lessons that I've learned over the years in my nearly 30 years as a pastor that will help other pastors lead better now. One of the reasons why I'm doing this is because increasingly I'm getting calls from other church leaders asking for my thoughts on how to structure and organize churches. Many of them have seen a massive influx of people over the last several years, and they're trying to figure out how to get their infrastructure, how to get their discipleship models right. So that's just where I, I'm hoping to go uh, with this. But for, for today and, and for next week, we'll talk about eldership. So if we look at, if we look at the, um, uh, the, the time of the patriarchs. So I just want to build a little case here. The time of the patriarchs in Genesis 50, you can look this up on your own, Genesis 50, verse 7, Joseph goes and he buries his father and he goes up to the land of Canaan, the promised land, and it says there that he took along the elders of his household and all the elders of a land of Egypt. So even in this non-Christian, non-Jewish context in Egypt, there was this concept of eldership 
of seasoned veteran older men that would lead and guide Egypt. And then in Exodus chapter 4, when Moses and Aaron wanted to have a conversation with the people of Israel, it says they gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Why would they gather the elders? Because they know that certain people just carry more influence, carry more weight in their decisions. In Numbers 22, verse 7, the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with fees for divination. So they weren't functioning in, in a biblical sense by any stretch. They were dishonoring the Lord. But what do we see? We see in Egypt. We see in Israel. We see in Moab. We see in Midian eldership. So eldership wasn't something that was unique to Israel. It's certainly not unique to the church. The basic concept of the more seasoned veterans influencing and leading others is, we could say, transcultural. It's been around since the beginning of time. And so we, when we look at the concept of eldership in the New Testament, there's unique qualifications for church leaders, but the basic idea is that in any civilization, in every, in every nation, and certainly among the people of God, senior experienced individuals are often identified, and they serve to bring structure. They serve to bring with them a connectedness to our history. They bring order, and they offer representative leadership. So while a person could be 18 years old and be an incredibly thoughtful, godly young man, the reality is, is that with, with eldership, the assumption is, is that someone who's been around the block a few times is going to bring with them greater wisdom, greater weight in general than the younger. So that's a bit of a background just to help people to understand that eldership isn't unique to the Christian church. It's part of the structures and dynamics of culture and has been so since pretty much the beginning of time. Mm -hmm. So in the New Testament, I know we come across different terms for elder, yeah. uh, and I think it'd probably be helpful for us to highlight some of those terms and review them so that we're all using the same language as we continue the conversation. So what would be some of those? Yeah, absolutely. So in First uh, Timothy, First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, it talks about aspiring to the office of an overseer. If anybody aspires to that office, he desires a noble task, which, by the way, is the first necessity for eldership. You have to aspire to it. Now, it doesn't mean that if you aspire to it that you're necessarily qualified, but at the same time, you could be qualified and have absolutely no interest in doing it for whatever reason, so you probably shouldn't pursue it. So a, a desire, presumably a holy desire, uh, an informed desire, is the first thing that's identified in that biblical text. And the word there, overseer, is the Greek word episkopos, episkopos. And this word, in some older translations, can be translated as bishop. Now, in the modern church, most people don't talk about bishops because that term carries with it some ecclesiastical overtones. It almost sounds Catholic or something like that. And when we try to understand the meaning of it, the word bishop, it's like, well, what, what does that actually mean? Is that like a chess player? What, what is a bishop? Like the word itself doesn't necessarily carry the meaning very well. So most modern translators will take episkopos and translate it as overseer. And that word literally means to be a guardian or a superintendent. There's several passages in the scriptures that utilize this word episkopos, or in its plural episkopoi, to define eldership. Then there's a second word, elder. And this is translated from the Greek word presbyteros. Pretty much synonymous. The way I see it is episkopos and presbyteros from which we get the English word Presbyterian, are synonymous. So, for example, in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, in the fifth verse, he uses the word elder. In the seventh verse, he uses the word overseer, 
with no break in thought. So we have both the word presbyteros and the word episkopos used synonymously in the Titus 1 text. And then in Acts 20, verse 17, Paul calls the elders, and then as he's speaking to them in the 28th verse of that same chapter, he calls them or refers to them as overseers. So again, we have the word episkopos and presbyteros being used in, in the New Testament synonymously to refer to the same office of oversight. Now, there is some debate about the word pastor, which tends to be the more common word that we use to describe the office of eldership. The word pastor comes from a Greek noun, poemen, and it means shepherd. It's used 18 times in the New Testament. In the New International Version of the Bible, which I think is being used less and less, certainly in the circles that I run in, they translate this word shepherd as pastor only one time in the fourth chapter of Ephesians. And the rest of the time when this word appears in the New Testament, again, 18 times, it's translated as shepherd. So when you're reading it and you see the word shepherd, it may not be as obvious to the eye that this is the word from which we get the English word uh, pastor. Now, a shepherd we know in the most literal sense, cares for sheep or goats. And that's kind of the most literal meaning of the word, but it is used metaphorically in several, 10 times actually in the New Testament to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord Jesus Christ, who we would feel comfortable saying is the great shepherd or the great pastor of the church, is call, called a poemen time and time again in uh, the Gospels, in the book of Hebrews, in the book of 1 Peter. And in, in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, this is interesting. It's one of the 10 instances where Christ is called the great shepherd, but it also he's also in that context called an overseer. The literal terminology there is he's the great shepherd and overseer. He's the great poemen, and he's the great episkopos of our soul. So here we have linkage. The word poemen is being linked together with the word episkopos. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, pastor and overseer, again, are used together to describe Christ, as we've already stated. And then in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, elder and pastor, in the context of shepherding the flock, are used together to describe the work of elders of episcopoi in the New Testament church. So in this context, elder, we could say, is the title of the position, and pastoring or shepherding is one of the critical actions or activities that an episcopos engages in. And then I'll give you a couple more references. In Acts 20, verse 28, there's, there's flock language there in that text, and it's used of elders and overseers. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, it's probably the only crystal clear example in the New Testament where pastor is described as one of the offices in the life of the church. So, we, we tend to talk about pastoral leadership more often than eldership, or we, we've created this, I, I think it's a false dichotomy, we, we call like lay leaders who are functioning as elders, elders, and if you went to seminary and went through an ordinate, formal ordination process, we call you in many of our churches a pastor. But really the more formal, more core term that we should be using and reviving, I think, in our churches is the, the word elder or overseer. And one of the functions of a elder overseer is to pastor, to shepherd God's people. And it's fine if you refer to the office as pastor as well, but the dominant language in the New Testament, as we've already mentioned, is 
presbyteros and and episkopos. So that's that's a, a little bit of a a word study, I guess, to try to help people to understand where these terms come from. We we have cluttered up our modern ecclesiastical language with with all sorts of titles to try to describe and define roles and relationships in the church. And I'm not opposed to those. I'm not opposed to having a Christian ed director or a team leader of youth ministry or whatever. That's fine. But we, we got to make sure we don't confuse people as to what an actual kind of where the where the buck stops in the life of the church, and that is in the office of eldership, which God has described uh, pretty clearly in the New Testament. Okay, so suppose we have a church that they're not very clear on these terms, elder, overseer, bishop, pastor. Um, is it is it a problem if they take the term pastor and they apply it to somebody who's maybe not an elder? I think we've probably seen that in cases in churches. They kind of use the term a little bit more loosely. Is that a big deal? I guess is maybe a question for you. Well, it doesn't mean you're going to be excluded from the eternal kingdom of God <laughs> if you get the terminology wrong. But I think it is important for us to clarify and use the terms that the scriptures give us in a way that are reflective of how they're used in the Bible. And there's many reasons for that. So obviously in the life of the church, there's all sorts of different areas that a person can serve in. And there's nothing wrong with us making up titles or language to try to describe what a person is doing in the life of the church. So we're appointing you as a Sunday school teacher. We're appointing you as a church custodian, or you're the team leader over the kitchen ministry, or you're the audiovisual assistant, or you're a worship team member, or whatever it might be. That's fine. We can use that kind of language. It it shortens conversations. Mm -hmm. right? We don't say, hey, the guy that pushes a broom down the hallway and cleans our bathrooms. We say, no, that's the custodian. Uh, we don't say the person that goes in and organizes the kitchen and the countertop and buys supplies for church-related events. No, that's the kitchen coordinator. So there's nothing wrong with with making up language that describes how people are functioning in the life of a church. But it does become a problem for many reasons when we we take eldership, we take the office and we we fuzzy it up, or we take the title of pastor and we apply it to non-eldership roles. Now, I, I understand that there's people listening to the podcast that come from different denominational persuasions who may be used to using terms that differ from my tradition. So for example, I know in some churches they may call the you know, the face of the church, the guy that sort of administers the service, um, the minister of word and sacrament. And mm -hmm. then you discover that he's not actually even an elder in the church. Or some churches differentiate between lay leadership and professional, quote unquote, even though I don't like that term, ordained seminary trained leadership by saying they're pastors and lay pastors, we just call them elders. Um, the problem is you 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 create... You, you create some confusion there. You create confusion about authority, like who actually has authority to make this decision or make that decision in the life of the church. And even if you clarify that, you sometimes tend to, to bring clarity that's sort of extra biblical and maybe even at times anti-biblical. So you're, for example, you may not be giving a person the authority that an elder should be given because they're on staff and they're quote unquote paid. So you're with you may be withholding authority that God has actually granted to that person just because they're on staff, or you may be withholding authority that has been granted to an elder that's not on your staff or not in vocational ministry because you know you don't want them to wield the same kind of authority that that the quote unquote professional staff. Wield. So I understand there's a lot of confusion. There's times when I've seen churches, they just call everybody a pastor who serves mm -hmm. over some area of people-related ministry. So you're the, you're the pastor of kids' ministry, the pastor of women's ministry, the pastor of men's ministry. It all, all almost just means a staff person. Um, I think that's uh, problematic because, if, for example, if you take the word pastor – 
which means elder, and you just give it to anybody that serves in a staff position, including women, well, the Bible doesn't allow women to serve as elders, as overseers, as pastors in the local church. That's a office that is reserved based on creation order for the qualified male because one of the critical qualifications of an elder, pastor, bishop, overseer is to teach doctrine to men and women to oversee the church. Um, so you can kind of fuzzy up in people's minds uh, what an elder actually is, and you can kind of add to the whole confusion of gender-related roles in the life of the church. But maybe one of the more critical issues is, think about this for a moment. If a person is serving in an eldership office in the life of a local church, and they're preaching, and they're trying to figure out what to preach, they're giving leadership direction to other people, they're trying to figure out what they're um, delegated authority is in that regard. They're trying to give direction to the life of the church. There can be some confusion as to where their authority starts and stops, mm -hmm. how much authority they have. If, if they haven't been actually told, no, you are an elder in your local church. If you're an elder, you can look to the scriptures and it's very clear that you are to oversee, that you are to shepherd, that you are to administrate, that you are to teach doctrine to God's people, that you're to exercise church discipline over the flock. If no one's told you that, you're sort of like a minister of the word or you're you're a pastor but you're not an elder, it, it creates this um, weird dynamic where you're not even sure what your office is and therefore where your responsibilities start and stop. Now, a lot of churches get around that by making up ministry descriptions or making up job descriptions that define those things, but it's 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 made up. The the the, the ministry description, you may be mm -hmm. calling the person by a title that's not that's not actually uh in lockstep with the ministry description, or you you may be granting people uh titles, biblical titles that but not permitting them to function mm -hmm in the way that that title is described in the New Testament. So it just brings, it can bring a whole boatload of confusion. I, I, I'm, you know, I sort of go by the, the KISS acrostic, you know, keep it simple, saint. Yes, the saint, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and if the Bible provides us with the terminology of eldership, of overseer, of pastor, and we, we know what those, we know what that office is, we have the, lists of qualifications for it spelled out for us in the New Testament, why not just use those? Mm -hmm. And that way that the young man who's serving in ministry knows whether he's an elder or not. The the board member knows whether he's an elder or not. The, the guy that's preaching on Sundays knows whether he's an elder or not. It's just clear in his mind. And then he's able to function in a way that's commensurate to the responsibility the New Testament places upon um, that role. Yeah. I know in our ministry here, you've talked to me before about even, you know, Chris, you're serving as a pastor, but sometimes you serve as more like a deacon pastor. And it's like, wait, there's distinct roles. And obviously a, a pastor can serve. And we're not talking about the diaconal role fully here, but there is a, a need to keep the role of an elder distinct so that it doesn't become, you're the catch-all for everything, right? Right. Yeah. So that's, that's a good point because so deacon, diakonos, or in the feminine, diakonai, and there's differences of opinion on this in uh, among biblical scholars, but in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, Phoebe's called the diakonai, which is the, the feminine form of diakonos. So it, it would appear, unless that's just um, describing her as a servant and not carrying the office of deacon, it would appear that the office of deacon is open to men and women, whereas the office of presbyteros, of episkopos, of poemen is reserved for qualified men. And the reason why I have no problem with that is if you look at the qualifications of deacons and elders in the New Testament, in the pastoral epistles, both of them have to know the word of God and many of the other qualifications line up, but a deacon does not have to be apt to teach. Mm -hmm. Well, 
that's that's a critical point because an elder must be apt to teach and he's teaching the whole church. So I think it's fine to have female deacons so long as they are not teaching men and wielding authority on that level. The person that heads up your children's ministry, your women's ministry, various ministries in the church could be a person that's assigned to the office of deacon or diaconi. And in, in my view, that's fine. It becomes confusing if you have guys that are called deacons who are functioning as elders. Mm-hmm. And to your point, where I like to kind of keep um, you know, some of the younger guys in our church moving in the right direction is to say, look, we all, even as elders, should be willing to serve. So stacking chairs, cleaning toilets, washing windows is not beneath us. We should do those things as unto the Lord when opportunity arises, or I should say need arises. But if I'm going to properly exercise my office, or you're going to properly exercise your office as a pastor, elder, overseer in the life of the church, it's just not the best use of our time for us to take deacon's work away and start deaconing all day. So we're always thinking about this as pastors and I'm fine-tuning this even in my own life many years in, when I'm serving in my church, am I actually doing ministry that is elder ministry, or do I do I tend to drift toward diaconal-type ministry, which then we all, we all only have 24 hours in a day, which then distracts me from doing the, the work of the ministry that God has defined mm-hmm. for elders. So it's not better or worse to be an elder or deacon, it's just different. And we want our deacons to be doing practical, hands-on, nose-to-the-grindstone kind of work and leadership in the life of the church. And we want to reserve doct- overseeing doctrine, discipline, direction, dealing with crisis, pastoral care, and counseling. We want that to those functions to primarily be mm-hmm. shouldered by the, the elders of the church. Mm-hmm. So with that... Um, we mentioned qualifications already, but I think it would be good to walk through those qualifications of, of eldership specifically and okay. uh, explain those each to our listener, give the context and whatnot. Sure. Well, let me just say what they're not. So you're not an elder because you give a lot of money to your church because every third guy in the church is your brother or uncle or first cousin. You're not an elder in the church because you have a big business and people know that you wield authority outside of the church. You're not an elder because you happen to be in political office and people are looking for guys that you know have leadership skills. Um, you're not an elder because you know you show up early and you you stay late. And I, I'm emphasizing that because I honestly think a lot of guys uh, or a lot of churches appoint people to leadership to eldership based more on those characteristics than the actual biblical qualifications. So it's really important. Obviously, if you're a leader in the church, chances are you're probably also going to be a leader outside the church. And if you have the capacity to administrate the affairs of a church, I wouldn't be surprised you're administrating affairs outside of the church. And if you're competent at communicating God's word, chances are you're competent at communicating publicly in general. So it's it's not surprising that men who serve in careers or vocations where they publicly communicate, they oversee people, they they manage money would necessarily end up serving as eldership in the uh, elders in the church. But we have to be really careful to define eldership fundamentally in the way the Bible does. And in the pastoral epistles, meaning the epistles, you know, we have first Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, written by Paul to Timothy and Titus, tell them to shepherd, to pastor local churches, and to equip men to pastor and shepherd local churches. We have lists of qualifications. So it's kind of like an application, a a job board. Okay, we're hiring in this area. Here's the qualifications. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're going to be an elder and you look at first. Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 to 7, there's your list there. You should know that. You should vet your men based upon these basic qualifications. It says there in verse 2, therefore an elder must be. So these aren't optional. These aren't, well, you know, 
six of our elders qualify in that regard, so we can afford to have three guys that don't. Mm -hmm. No, they must be above reproach. So we have that as, which is, which is a little bit subjective in terms of how it's defined, but it basically means there that you you can't be laid hold of. So people are going to criticize every pastor and every elder if they're actually leading well. Mm-hmm. You get criticism all the time, but none of it sticks. It's like the mud is thrown at the wall, but it just falls to the floor. That kind of an idea. So that's really important. He must be the husband of one wife. It doesn't mean that he must have a wife because there's a higher office in the New Testament, the office of apostle, which is held by men like uh, Paul, who wasn't married. So it would be a little odd to require marriage for a person to be an elder. So I would never problem with a person being single, celibate, and being an elder. Although, you know, you want to understand why. Why are you single? Is it something you're called to, or is it still a part of your life that you're seeking out? Because if, for example, if there's this is just a practical consideration, but if there's a young man that really, really wants to be married, and then you appoint him to eldership, and then suddenly he finds a wife, well, now you might have to remove him from eldership uh, if you know his wife doesn't fit the bill, so to speak. Because you know we found over the years that part of uh, the Bible talks about managing your own household, and we look pretty carefully at the character and the qualifications of the elder's wife as well, because you don't want a mature elder with an immature wife. Mm-hmm. You don't want a mature elder with a wife who doesn't understand what the office of elder is or is you know, a gossip or isn't able to keep appropriate confidentiality and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, some people think that that's... Uh, basically excluding polygamy. Well, obviously it would exclude polygamy because that's not God's creational pattern or order, but I don't think that was a big issue in the Greco-Roman era, so it's unlikely that he's saying, you know, what we're focusing on here is no polygamists need apply. I'm just not sure that would have been relevant to the New Testament context. Uh, Some have suggested it means that he cannot be divorced or widowed, but again, that's not explicit in the context. Although I would say that divorced men even men that were divorced prior to salvation, and this is a, a discernment issue, sometimes tend to struggle as elders because one of the things you're going to deal with as elders is marital issues. And a lot of guys who've been through divorces that are serving in eldership in churches, assuming they're the, in, the quote unquote innocent party, they, they're they a little gun shy or they, they feel a little awkward about dealing with marital issues because they know they have a stain in their past. Mm-hmm. So that's a wisdom issue. Um, some would suggest it, it means like a one-woman man, meaning that he's he's committed to his wife. He's the he's the husband of one wife is the equivalent of like a one-woman man. I think that's probably where I would lean. I don't think here he's he's talking about polygamy. Although again, I, I agree that would be a, a disqualifier, but I don't think that's what's being talked about here. Yep. I'm doubtful that it's excluding divorced people or widows, although you have to be incredibly careful if you're ever considering appointing someone who's been through a divorce to eldership for the reasons I mentioned earlier. It's probably uh, a way of saying you have to find a man that has a high-quality marriage. He's mm-hmm. we, know, we know that's so critical. You know, our wives can make or break us <laughs> in many respects. So that's that's my view on that. Sober-minded means that he's a, a clear thinker. Uh, it would also exclude being a drunkard, but that he's a clear thinker. He has a an IQ, uh, an ability to think that is commensurate to the tasks and responsibilities that are going to be assigned to him. Mm-hmm. Self-controlled is very similar. It means sound-minded. Uh, the fifth qualification is respectable, meaning that he needs to be orderly or honorable. The sixth is he needs to be hospitable. Hospitality means that you're a lover of strangers. So if you have someone that's an introvert, doesn't feel comfortable approaching new people, 
doesn't feel comfortable um, interacting with the proverbial stranger, probably not a good candidate for eldership. Uh, you got a guy that sort of uh, just likes to hide in the shadows. Okay, great. There's places to serve, but the, the introverted, passive pastor who's who's afraid to meet new newcomers is going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a, a necessary qualification. Um, he must be able to teach. So we're not talking about math, science, biology, chemistry, gardening. We're talking about the scriptures. And I just want to note as well that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, the Bible says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she must remain quiet. So it doesn't say she can't teach or exercise authority, but it does say she can't teach or exercise authority over a man. So there's a place for women preachers, but they can't preach to men. Hmm. There's a place for women in positions of authority, but they can't have spiritual church authority, ecclesiastical authority over men. And some people have suggested, well, this is just a cultural thing. Mm -hmm. Well, no, it's not. Because Paul then goes on to say, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So he bases it upon creation order. It's kind of like your parents were born before you. So until you leave and cleave, they have authority over you. doesn't mean they're better human beings than you are, but they were born first. And so there needs to be respect. We're to respect the elderly. Why? Because they're better humans. No, because they were born first. Mm-hmm. So that same principle applies here. Adam was created first, and therefore that says something about the nature of the male-female relationship in marriage, and that spills over to how they're to function in the life of the church. And so we could say that since elders are required to teach doctrine to everyone, women cannot hold this office, but they can certainly exercise shepherding gifts or teaching gifts elsewhere in the life of uh, of the church. The the eighth qualification is to not be a drunkard, which means someone that doesn't linger around the wine cup. Some it, it doesn't exclude the consumption of alcohol, but it does exclude those that would abuse it or misuse it. Not violent, meaning that he's not a brawler or or a fighter. It doesn't mean that he's a passive pussycat, but a pushover, uh, a weakling, Pastors need to be brave men, courageous men. A lack of courage is actually a damnable sin. The coward mm-hmm. is described in a damnable sense in the latter chapters of Revelation, but not violent. I heard years ago of a um, a church out in the county that after a, a, a board meeting, actually they had a, these guys had a fist fight in the parking lot. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> so, you know, they're, these are this is disqualifying. You know, if you're beating people up or you're violent or e- even with your um, uh, posture or your your um, voice, you're intimidating mm-hmm. people with, with uh, violent rhetoric, with yelling, hollering. These are disqualifying characteristics. Uh, he must be gentle, meaning uh, reasonable, kind, forbearing, not quarrelsome. So it doesn't mean that he doesn't know how to have a good debate, but he, he he's not combative. He's not... Uh, you know, back and forth, back and forth. An expression of this, I, I've told many younger guys this, like on social media. As mm-hmm. soon as you post something and you get pushed back, it's okay to respond to a criticism maybe once. But if you're back and forth, back and forth band, you're, you're quarrelsome. I've seen professors do this, pastors do this, seasoned Christians do this. They post something on social media, Somebody responds, they get into this big debate, it's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Well, you know everyone's watching and looking Mm -hmm. in, so are you actually debating the issue or just trying to defend yourself from looking bad? And if that's part of your makeup, that's part of your character, you're combative, you always gotta be right, you have to have the final say, there's never a point in time when you can uh, either say uncle or just back off, Um, that's a disqualifying characteristic. And so you don't want to appoint someone to the office of elder that that has that characteristic in them. The Bible also says he must not be a, a lover of money, meaning that he's not motivated to do uh, ministry for the paycheck. Uh, I would also just say in terms of application there, 
we all need to ask ourselves, like, would I still do what I do if I wasn't getting paid? Because I don't serve for the paycheck. The paycheck just kind of comes along after to support, you know, me in a world that requires money. And the other thing would be if a pastor doesn't do what he knows is right because he's concerned about losing his paycheck or being threatened mm -hmm. by the church treasurer to have his paycheck taken away, shame on him. So money money should be irrelevant when it comes to the decisions that we make, whether we're leading parachurch organizations or working in the church institute. It's it's a character flaw to 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 make decisions based upon the financial gain that we may benefit or the loss of financial benefit. It sh it should be almost irrelevant to us. Just make be a principled leader. Be a principled leader mm -hmm. and not driven by money. And then the um the the 13th qualification is managing his own household well. So this implies that he would normally be married. And it's sort of an argument here from the lesser to the greater. If if you can't manage your 13-year-old, how in the world do you think you're going to manage the 100 people that fill your pews on Sundays? So we'll it's also not have 13-year-olds. <laughs> yeah. It's it's not a it's not an option. If your kids are punks, discipline them. If your wife is out of control, you need to get your act together. And so we're not talking about one-offs. You know, mm -hmm. every, every parent, I don't care how good of a parent you are, you're going to have times when the kid's a little off base or the marriage isn't quite you know, functioning on all, all eight cylinders. But you have to be able to figure out how to fix that with the help of the Lord and the instructions from Scripture. But if, if, you, if you are leading God's people and your kid's are unbelievers, your kids are wayward, your kids are out of control. We're talking about, we're not talking about adult kids that have, you know, left and cleft mm -hmm. uh, to, to their spouse. But your children, when they're under your roof, must be properly managed. And your marriage must be properly managed. And if you, you if you are not managing those things well, you cannot manage the household of faith. It's just impossible. Mm -hmm. This is one where guys often let themselves off the hook because like, yeah, but this is my, you know, this is my livelihood. This is my, well, it's right there in black and white in the scriptures. You have to be able to manage your household well. And so it should motivate you. I used to tell my kids sometimes if they were, you know, getting a little off, off kilter, I'd say, guys, you realize your behavior could actually disqualify me from office? Huh? Yeah, smarten up. Mm-hmm. Like your actions are not only dishonoring to the Lord or dishonoring to your parents, but it has an effect on the Christian church. So it's perfectly acceptable for a pastor to tell his children that, and he probably should. Mm -hmm. um, it also motivates you, right? So it, it it motivates you because a lot of times parents, there's no real conse immediate consequence to letting their kids linger in disobedience. But if the consequence is you might lose your public ministry, you might lose your pastoral ministry, you might not be able to sit on the church council anymore. Hey, that's that's a good motive to make sure you keep your family together. And then there's two more. He must not be a recent convert, meaning not, not newly planted. Now, in the New Testament, it would seem that within about three years or so, Paul would appoint elders and churches that he had planted. So we're not talking about necessarily I've been a Christian for 20 years, but I, I'm not sure that I've ever appointed or pursued a man to eldership who hasn't been a Christian probably for in the vicinity of at least 10 years that I recall. Because mm -hmm. it just it just takes time to really grow and develop. And then thought well of by outsiders. This doesn't mean that he will not have any enemies outside the church, but there's, there's no reason for him to be trash-talked in the community, assuming it's a relatively moral community, because he's functioning well. Mm -hmm. So you got a guy that... Um, you know, has uh, a track record of being belligerent in in the community. Now, some might say that's us, you know, over yeah. the last <laughs> few years because we've taken a stand. We're not talking about taking a stand for righteousness and being dragged through the mud. But if, you, if you're just not, you don't have a good reputation in the broader community, that may tip your people off to the fact that there's something off in your life and, and you don't qualify for 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 that office. So I know that's a bit of a long list there, but I think it's important for people to familiarize themselves. I would encourage pastors, every once in a while, just pull out your Bible and read through that 
slowly, one qualification at a time, there's 15 there, and just ask, do I meet those qualifications? It wouldn't be a bad idea once a year or so to sit down with your your elders council and just kind of go through it. Say, hey guys, let's just kind of do a quick review here. Number one, number two, number three, number four, go through them. Do we actually qualify? We're looking at a man for possible eldership. Does he actually meet those qualifications as best as we can tell? Mm-hmm. So it's it's important for us to review those, not just read them once and set them aside. They're really, really critical. Yeah. Well, just as an aside, would you recommend lay people read this list and live up to it? Or I know some of them might not fit. If you're a recent convert, there's not much you can do. <laughs> well, all of these all of these qualifications should be ones that every Christian on some level aspires to, whether they're put into practice out in the open or they're a little bit more personal. For, for example, you may not be a gifted communicator. You may not be able to teach the Word of God, but growing in your ability to teach God's Word to your kids or to have a conversation with your neighbor over the proverbial fence, why wouldn't you want to develop in your ability to communicate the Word of God to others? Why wouldn't and, – and then there, there's a, a moral dimension here as well. Why wouldn't you – abstain from drunkenness? Why wouldn't you want to be more clear-minded? So the qualifications for elders are ones that everyone should aspire to, not for the sake of becoming an elder, but with eldership, it's extra critical. It's extra critical Mm -hmm. that a man actually meets these qualifications or the ramifications and the implications of failure upon the local church is incredible. This is why this is why we have so many denominations. Denominations don't go astray because the proverbial pew sitter suddenly buys into false doctrine. They go astray because the quote unquote clergy, the bishops, the elders, the overseers suddenly buy into the, the woke agenda or cease to affirm the triunity of God or cease cease to um, teach justification by grace through faith alone. So the the, the church is going to go the direction that its leaders go. This mm-hmm. is the problem, by the way, probably step on some toes. This is the problem with congregationalism. When you entrust authority to everyone in the church, that means that a person that's been walking with Christ for 30 years and actually meets these qualifications has an equal voice as some guy that was just baptized last Sunday and stumbled in off the street a month before not knowing Christ. Like, think about... Think about that. You're, this this notion that be, being part of the priesthood of believers means that you should have the same say or the same authority, I think is nonsense. God has assigned in marriage, in society, and in the church leadership. And a leader is not the same as a follower. And we're okay with followers, but we also believe in leaders. The Bible says, let the elders that rule well, not facilitate, (laughs) not just point people in the right direction. That's a kingly word. Let the elders that rule well be worthy of double honor. So we believe in our church, because I think it's, we're just taking it straight to the New Testament. uh, We don't, we're not an elder led church. We're an elder ruled church. We're not an elder-facilitated church. We're an elder-ruled church. Now, those elders rule in keeping with the qualifications given to them, in keeping with the tasks and responsibilities given to them under the great shepherd of the church. They don't Mm -hmm. rule over top of Christ. They rule under Christ. So as soon as a pastor ceases to rule under Christ, he disqualifies himself. So this isn't some tyrannical, dictatorial... uh, model of leadership, but it's actual hardcore leadership. And we find that in an elder-ruled church that people actually have way more opportunities to serve because elder, elder rule is limited to the tasks and responsibilities that God has given to elders. So elders don't need to be doing the diaconal work. Mm-hmm. So if they're actually, if an elder is actually ruling in keeping with his, I'll use the word job description, he's actually freeing up everyone else to do the work that God has assigned to them. Now, he's overseeing them, but he's he's freeing them up to do the work assigned to them rather than 
having some model of eldership where you know you do everything you shovel the snow you you know balance the books you pay the bills you set up communion you do all the baptisms you you lead the worship you change the letters in the church sign you write the bullet in your organized that's not eldership that's a bit of eldership a bit of diaconal leadership and a whole lot of something else mm -hmm. and that doesn't work it it creates a ministry bottleneck in the life of the church mm -hmm. Well, we're going to get into some stuff next week, more about developing elders, finding elders. Um, but to summarize this this episode, just wanted to ask, what would be some takeaways that you really want our listeners to lock into and practice in their local churches? Well, I would just like our listeners to really affirm the need for qualified elders in the local church. Like, just make this a priority. Having good elders should be a priority in every New Testament church. Just working hard at developing really good elders. The consequences, both negatively and positively, are huge. Mm -hmm. So just having really working hard at developing um, qualified elders, working hard at understanding and communicating to your whole church what the qualifications are for eldership, really important, brings clarity. No, you're not an elder. Yes, you are an elder. Now I know how I'm supposed to function. Great. Thanks for letting me know. So bringing clarity to the qualifications instead of Making the word elder some stretchy, elastically, elasticy kind of means whatever you want it to mean kind of word, like stick to the New Testament definitions. Use clear language. If you want to use elder, pastor, overseer, bishop interchangeably, I recommend it. We try to do that in our church. But then we also, you know, we also, by the way, just sidebar, we recognize that there's still different levels of skill and experience even among elders. Mm -hmm. So if you got a guy sitting in a in a in a church uh, elders council who's 60 years old, has done 20 years of eldering in the local church, has a master's degree in theology, um, has a ton load of experience, and then you have a man that was ordained to eldership a month ago, well, they they have the same office, ultimately the same authority. But wise people, even among an eldership, are going to say, yeah, this, this person is more of a papa bear pastor. They just have a lot of experience and wisdom and time in the trenches. And so we're probably going to defer to them more often than not. So there's nothing wrong with that as well. And that's more of just an organic wisdom decision. Mm -hmm. It's like if you, if you uh, have a men's retreat in your church and um, – you know, let's just say you have a men's retreat for for married men who have children, and you're going to address how to balance, um, you know, ministering to your wife and ministering to your kids. So it's kind of a niche ministry. Well, you're if if you have 20 guys attend that retreat, you're probably not going to be assuming that the guy that's been married for you know 10 months and has a two-week-old child is going to be facilitating and leading that retreat. You're probably gonna to look to the guy that has a bunch of kids, a lot of experience, been married for a long time. It doesn't mean that he's a super dad and the other guy's a peon, but in any body of like-minded people, there's going to be those that do have a little more skill or a little more education. And I find even in our elders council, like some guys are just, better shepherds, some guys are better administrators, some guys are better communicators, some guys are more strategic in their thinking, some are more kind and hospitable in their thinking. They, they all meet the qualifications, but they tend to spike mm -hmm. higher in certain areas. That's fine, that's totally fine. You, you, don't, you don't want, um, you know, if they ever developed a cloning machine and you, you, know, you, you identified the, the ultimate elder you know, in your church, you don't just run them through the cloning machine so you can get a plurality of elders and, you know, have six guys that all talk the same, look the same, uh, have the same gifts. There, There is diversity is what I'm saying among elders, but the basic qualifications must be adhered to. Uh, I also think that it's really important for uh, elders to be given authority commensurate to their responsibility. There's a principle in leadership that basically says, if you have responsibility, but you don't have the commensurate authority, you will fail. You'll fail yourself and you'll fail others. So what that means is that if you want a person, for example, to run your men's ministry, you need to create 
boundary fences and say, okay, here's the liberties that you have. Here's the liberties you don't have. Have at it. And then it's like, okay, we understand. We understand this is what you want me to do. I can make any number of decisions as long as they stay within these boundary fences, whether those boundary fences are budgetary or, you know, in terms of reporting structures or whatever it might be. There's nothing more frustrating than being given responsibility and then being told, by the way, every time you blink, you have to ask your supervisor for permission. Well, it's the same with eldership. If if you're going to actually lead a church, you have responsibility to teach, to oversee, to guide, direct, cast vision, whatever it might be. Give these guys the authority to actually make decisions. And then when you as an elder appoint people to lead a small group or teach Sunday school or take care of the, care of the facilities, identify the boundary fences and then leave them alone. Like let them go do their job. Don't micromanage people. There's nothing more frustrating and that creates a greater bottleneck in the life of the church than when elders and people in any position of leadership have their they micromanage every single thing other people do. It's exhausting. Mm-hmm. So you want to lead on a macro level, but you also want to, when you appoint people to leadership, if they have a responsibility, a, a job to do, give them the authority to make decisions, to spend money, to build their ministry team, to advertise their ministry, whatever it might be. Um, the another thing that I would, I, I we'll probably get to this a little bit more in the next podcast, but. Don't let's get away from this ridiculous notion that if if you have a seminary degree and you come out, you're a pastor. Mm-hmm. You're not. So yeah, but if I go to engineering school, I'm an engineer. True. If I go to teaching teachers college, I'm a teacher. True. If I go to nursing school, I'm a nurse. True. Well, if I go to pastor school, aren't I a pastor? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Most guys I went to school with are not pastoral ministry. Some of them went in and stayed in. Some of them never went in. Some of them went in and went out. Um, but the pastoral ministry isn't something, being an elder isn't something you, you attain because you went to seminary. I mean, seminaries can be hugely beneficial or they can be destructive depending on what seminary you go to. I'm pro seminary training, but the degree doesn't make you qualified for the office. It may accelerate the process. That's true if you are gifted in that area. But let's let's look at the biblical qualifications rather than looking at the educational qualifications when we are appointing people to this um, uh, office. And then I also wanna just kinda see people, um, I guess, reclaim a positive view of um, male eldership, that this is a good thing, that we want men to lead, that we want men to lead in the highest, uh, office of the New Testament church. So those are some things I wanted to talk about. I did a seminar. Uh, we had a, a church at war conference in Waterloo there uh, last fall, I guess it was. And I went through a lot of this uh, there. So some of you that may have been to that um, conference will, will recognize some of this material. But I've just, I've had a lot of calls since then and people asking for, um, you know, more more clarity and just trying to figure out how to put this into practice. So I, I think I think this is probably one of the most worthwhile um, podcasts we've ever done because the leadership is absolutely critical, Chris, to the life mm-hmm. of a church. And if you get leadership wrong, it has a domino effect. If you get leadership right, you can then build off a nice solid leadership foundation to, b- to build a prevailing church. And it just blesses everybody. Every- kids are blessed by it. Women are blessed by it. Other men are blessed by it. The church is blessed by it. The community is blessed by it blessed by it. So let's just really, let's do a good job as um, faithful New Testament churches in, in bringing clarity to the office of elder and then just developing really high caliber men to lead our churches. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Awesome. Well, thank you, Aaron. And uh, thanks to our listeners. I'm sure if you are in a, a church with elders that are meeting the biblical qualifications, they could use encouragement in that too. So, um, you know, send them a podcast and say, thanks for being a great elder or something. Uh, just some way to encourage them and pray for them. We want to let you know that the Leadership Now podcast is available on demand, both from the uh, Pursuit of Glory website, that's Pastor Aaron's blog, as well as the Fight, Laugh, Feast network. You can download their app and get the the, uh, 
podcast there. And we hope that you will tune in next week for part two of this uh, series talking about getting eldership right on the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock.